Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me as always is Eitan. Hello, Eitan. Hey, Carl. I Before I ask you how you are, I just wanted to highlight with everyone that you got me a very cool birthday present that is very on brand with our uh, what we talk about, so I wanted to highlight it. Well, I, I think it's cool to you. I don't know if it's objectively cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, what that means, but what I care about. I think it's objectively cool, even if it's just for me. So, Carl, you got me um, a print of, like, one of the original posters or advertisings for the monorail in Disneyland. So, back in 1950, I always forget, 50, 51, 55. Perfect, thank you. I should know this. I, I, I use my hand signals to help edit Eton here. Yeah, Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> uh, signed by the lead Imagineer that worked on it, uh, Bob Gore, who is still alive. He's still working through... I mean, he's not active at Disney, but I saw him at D23 a couple of years ago talking about ride vehicles, and it was very cool. So I really appreciate the specificity of the, of the gift. Well, you know... There are not many people I can buy that specifically for, so I'm happy like it. Oh, yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was pretty good, and it goes, it's going to go well. Um, I'm going to think about it next week when I'm in, in Orlando, exploring Disney. We still need to talk well, about what I need to record live or what needs to happen on that trip. We, we, can, we can chat either at the end of this episode or after the episode and spare people the details. Perfect. But bringing up D23, I think, is a good segue into the first thing I wanted to talk about, which is a also a follow-up to last week's episode, where we really dug deep on the Parks panel at D23, which not really sure if we can call it a panel legally, but, but they are trying to. <laughs> uh, but elsewhere in the company, uh, you and I came with away last week with the same perspective that Things are not great in the House of Mouse right now in terms of brand equity and success. And there's something that we wanted to highlight that you and I both took umbrage with and were kind of shocked by. Yes. And um, that is that as part of the panel when they announced the movies, they announced that they're making Inside Out 2, which... But I'll finish saying, and then I want to come back to this specifically. <laughs> but I have a, I have a big question of around why are they making Inside Out two? But as part of that, uh, there was a scoop, I think by Lucas Shaw, which said that um, the original cast was coming back, headlined by Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler. Yes, I'm not confusing with the other. I always confuse her with what's the name of the other blonde comedian. Amy, Amy Schumer. Schumer. They're both Amy. Yes. Sorry, Amy Poehler, but I got them right. Amy Poehler is coming back as Joy, but that Mindy Kaling and Bill Hader, who uh, played disgust and anger, are not coming back. Is it disgust fear. or sadness? Fear and disgust. Fear, 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 fear. That's right. Fear and yes. disgust. They're not, not coming. Disgust. Yeah, they're not coming back. And the, the announcement was said to be driven because... Um, Amy Poehler was offered $5 million, 
while they were offered their original salary of I think $100,000 which seems insane yeah Carl you're making a lot of faces yeah it's so lots to unpack here one something that doesn't rub me the wrong way is there being an inside out too yes sequels uh, whatever but there's sequels to everything and there always has been especially Disney and Pixar and I think as far as Pixar films that are easily easily sequelizable. I think there's a clear path to a sequel for Inside Out 2. At least in terms of I can see how character motivations would shift as the human they inhabit, Riley, ages. That makes sense to me. Does that land well for you? I think that makes sense to me from the if if I <laughs> if I come to terms that we live in this world where everything is gonna have a sequel because it can. <laughs> But, you know, I have a very, I mean, I, all of us, well, I think Pixar is very good at connecting with people of all ages. Inside Out, I think specifically, it was one that it hit something for me. I don't know if I have, like, very specific memories of my childhood in the household that I grew up. We had, my parents got a divorce that a lot of the topics that they onboarded around how you can lose, you know, islands that represent very core parts of your identity or how a memory could be, you know, joyful and sad at the same time or disgusting and funny or, like, whatever this mix of things. Like, it really hit me. It doesn't matter if the science of how things actually work on your mind has nothing to do with it, but it really represented me. And I, you've heard me say throughout this, our almost 100 episodes, that, like, when Riley says... I miss Minnesota, and she starts, like, mm-hmm. crying and sobbing when she almost ran out of home. Like, I cried for Minnesota. Like, I miss Minnesota, too. And this is one where it also falls on the category of, like, <laughs> Pixar likes to explain you how things work, and this is how the mind works, yeah. or in Soul, how death works, or in uh, Coco, how the afterlife works, or whatever, where... Like you mentioned, it can feel as something that is very easily expanded on. You can talk about other worlds. And I think of John Wick. I mean, like, yeah, well, you go to Rome and there is other versions of this and it's cool and it adds. And But at the same time, I'm like, Inside Out for me is truly like Wally or Ratatouille. It's like, it's this perfect mm-hmm. thing that lives on its own and it's its thing. And I really hope that they didn't make one. And I was truly surprised when they announced it because I don't know if it was reported before. Maybe it wasn't. But I was I was honestly shocked that it was happening. And to your point, I think it makes sense from a business perspective. I don't know how you don't make that decision. But for me as a consumer, it's like... I don't know. I don't, I don't need the Lion King 2. You know, like, I don't need a Little Mermaid 2. It's okay. <laughs> what... The thing that bothers me, uh, there's one anecdote here that I want to share, and then I want to dig into the thing that bothers me about this. The anecdote here is that one of the major press junket stories that everyone kept trotting out in the original Inside Out press junket back in 2015 was that Bill Hader was a huge animation nerd and essentially just fought his way into being in on this film. Did you know this? No. No, he, the, he looks like that. Enti- I buy it. Uh, I mean, have you seen documentary now? No. 
oh, Documentary Now is the biggest film nerd project I've ever seen on, on TV made by comedians. It is I'm making just pitch perfect recreations of documentaries except like satirical bents on them. But it's there every single documentary is inspired by either a single documentary or the idea like a, a certain genre of documentaries like like uh, like vice web videos or something. But just one of the strangest TVs to or TV shows to emerge in, in peak TV. It's him and Fred Armisen. They just make recreations of documentary, including using like the same cameras and stuff. Okay. But tracks with him being an animation nerd. But he finagled himself a trip to Pixar, as uh, I have also done in my life. Love but the him. difference being, he's Bill Hader, and I'm not. <laughs> and he saw, I believe, Pete Doctor across mm-hmm. the room. Like and you went and harassed him. I which like I have you. also done. Also done. Yes. <laughs> but he, he's Bill Hader and pitched himself as, I should voice a character on one of your films. And he ended up being able to, which is cool. But it's funny that that's like the one of the stories that kept telling in all the late night shows about Inside Out. And then, that doesn't matter here. He's too expensive. He's the star of Barry. He's, he's Bye. Fa- he's fantastic. But yeah, I think it, this, is, this is one that also came out, I think the... F- well, my recollection, or the first time that I remember being like, oh, wow, voices for animated movies, was when they wanted to make uh, Monsters University. Mm-hmm. And John Woodman and Billy Crystal just being like, I mean, <laughs> sure, but like, we charge whatever, eight million each. Or, I, I don't remember what it was. And with this one, let's let's play it. You are P. Doctor. How how does this how should have how should have bleh, I, my English today has all day been terrible. How would you have played it out as you go into these conversations with him? Yeah. Well, we could role play an exercise in which Pete Doctor, producer, major brain trust figure, and director of Inside Out Two is pitching this, but I think he's directing Inside that. Out Two. He's co-directing according oh, to cool. IMDb. It's, he has time? Details are still sketchy. Yeah, amazing. But, okay. yeah. And he hasn't directed something since Soul, but he has a lot of producing credits for Pixar projects, right. obviously, as one of the most senior members of the company. I. It makes financial sense, right? But the, the thing that... It's just history repeats itself, like we've, we discussed last week, where... In 2004-ish, you have Disney, who has been struggling to make inroads on being taken seriously as an animation brand as they continually pump out more and more crap, um, both in the studio system in terms of, like, Home on the Range or Meet the Robinsons or or whatever. Like, the death knell of of Disney as an animation company to, to the point where they scrap the hand-drawn animation division and, and decide that they're not going to be... Let's wait a second, there's a siren. Cool, okay. They scrap the, the hand-drawn animation division, they decide that they're not investing as much in animation, and they're also really worried that they don't have a lot of original characters that can fill the stable in the theme parks and 
kids are only latching onto things from the early 90s at this point. Meanwhile, this film company that they've been distributing for years, Pixar, has the highest impact, most important characters that kids respond to and associate with the Disney brand, and they don't own these. So there was all this contentiousness. Like We've probably talked multiple times about how Michael Eisner wanted to make a Toy Story sequel. He had the rights to. Pixar bet the farm on just making one themselves because he wanted to use the right voice actors, whatever. But Eisner had turned Disney into a factory where they would make one tentpole brand thing and then just exploit it to death in terms of CPG and parks and especially direct-to-video sequels. And that's what this is starting to feel like with, with all of these... Disney Plus original films that are mostly live action action remakes, which are not even movies. But this is something where Pixar has been relegated to a streaming brand at this point, as we've discussed. And then they're making a sequel, and they're not doing the one thing that Pixar always did, which is have celebrity voice talent. They're the ones that like created this problem in the voice acting industry of having celebrity talent. Yeah, and also to the way I think about it, my simplistic framework for this is... I even pee doctor, I go into the room. I want all of all five of them back. Because even in the world where let's assume let's assume Amy Poehler was not gonna take less than five. Like if you went to everyone and we and said, Hey, you're all gonna make four, or you're all gonna make yeah. three, or you're all gonna make three and Joey's gonna make four, whatever. This is where your profit, you're worried about $8 million? Like, Inside Out 2 should be making $1 billion, even on a $200 million budget. Like, this is not, this is not the place, or or 600 million, right? It doesn't matter. But like, this 8 million, it almost feels like it's going to be equivalent to marketing that you're going to spend by just having Bill Hader and Mindy Kaling doing the rounds in the in the late night shows. Yeah. I I think it's a little high to give Amy Poehler 5 million plus points, which points are indescribable in this she market because also. who knows she's getting points also. Whereas everyone else was offered 100,000 no no options, no bonus. 100,000 seems insane. 100,000 seems like if you applied and you got a hundred thousand, even I would be like, "Well, is that the minimum from the, from the what's the name of the actors guild?" Yeah, I, I, I would sag, be like, yes. "What? Yes, is that is that the minimum for the SAG?" And then I from- mean, to be fair, it is voice acting work, right? Like, sure. and they already have these characters designed. They're not really being. It's not like Bill Hader is helping inform the process here, like he was with the original which I might be just, like, going purely off of special features here and saying that. But to, to me, it's like, okay, 2 million and 500,000 each for the rest of them seems fair. And even then, is Amy Poehler really the, like, draw in terms of the voice? Everyone else has distinctive voices. Everyone else has a specific character. I just very strange to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree with your first note going back to 10 minutes ago, which is, like, why antagonize talent? You're in the talent industry. They're antagonizing talent just like they did with Scarlett Johansson two years ago, right? Like they have, they are assuming that the brand is stronger than anything else, 
And I think that's going to be a recurring theme today with pretty much every topic where people are making wild decisions based off of streaming and just thinking that they have more power than anybody else and it doesn't really bear out. Potentially failing. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a good uh, segue. Uh, well, I don't know if this is actually people um, like using the power over others, but more internally. But you also surprised me with the announcement that Magic My 3, which like Inside Out is another movie that I didn't know was being developed, um, is instead of going directly to HBO Max, it's been decided that it's going to get a theatrical distribution. Tell us, tell us a bit more. So, Steven Soderbergh, a mutual favorite of both of ours, has been just pumping out movies for the last few years and has been putting these movies directly on HBO Max because he doesn't have to worry about performing well in the theaters. He's able to get a good deal from HBO. And Steven Soderbergh can make an amazing movie for very cheap. Right? Yep. But And this movie was announced. Uh, Soderbergh directed the first Magic Mike. He was retired when the second one was made, but was the cinematographer for it. And he made the third one. And the third one, the intention was, it was it's called uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance. And the intention Ooh. was always that it would go to HBO Max as part of his overall deal. But it was announced this week that it's actually going to be put directly in theaters. And to me, this is kind of a an archetypal example of, of something that you coined called the Encanto Paradox. Would you like to explain that again for us? Yes. And not only explain it, but I was thinking about it this weekend, and I'm going to expand on it. Awesome. So the Encanto Paradox came from... Encanto was released on theaters. I think it made... Oh, wow. That was a... Uh, a thunder very close to my window. It, it it got, I don't know, between 200 and $300 million in the box office, which for all intents and purposes was very low for a Disney animated mm-hmm. movie. Uh, a month later, four weeks after it was released, it appeared in Disney+, and then it rocketed to number one. Like, the songs became super famous. Like, Encanto became the impact that... It had the impact that it had in the culture because of the Disney Plus release. And my point with the Encanto Paradox was that everyone was saying that this was a sign of why they should put Encanto directly on Disney+. And the Encanto product is basically saying, our my perspective, I wonder if we could say our perspective, is that they should do exactly the opposite. That was literally yeah. the proof that it can have the impact that you want it to have and also make $300 million at the box office. And to expand on that, I was thinking about this over the weekend. Where I think this is going, even if this is going to take too, too long, is that all... Well, I'm... The hot take would be that this would include Netflix, but every studio that has theatrical distribution for some movies, they're going to stop making original movies that are going straight to streaming. They're just not going to exist. And it's going, it yeah. might take too long, but like, even if you're Pinocchio, that it's terrible for all intents and purposes, wouldn't it have made $200 million at the box office over a month? Did it help anyone, point? like, not... Like, the, the play here is for people to stay. The movies... I would love to see the, the Netflix um, analysis around acquisition versus retention between TV shows and, and movies, but for me, movies have always... Like, they've always been direct-to-TV movies, right? And Adrian might still make some of them because they've, they've been in that business for a very long time, but... It just seems you're leaving a lot of value on the table for no reason. Because if I'm subscribing to HBO or whatever, movies are something that 
you, you want to come back to and you want to see later. And if you saw it in the movies and you'll see it later, it, it just feels... This makes a lot of sense. And I think it's going to happen more and more to a point where, just like Disney, like discontinued Premiere Access, basically. And they, they didn't say it, but they discontinued it. I don't see them making too much direct to direct to Disney Plus. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. Sorry. To further your point a little bit, it's we've talked a lot about how there's kind of an artificial divide between film and TV and mm-hmm. what is film, what is TV, what's a mini series whatever, right? And right now, I think the real inflection point is that a film is something that costs a higher budget amount per minute than a miniseries or a TV show mm-hmm. and is considered to be digestible in one sitting. That is something, and therefore, that is something that can be exhibited theatrically mm-hmm. and pulled in theatrical revenue. To your point about Netflix, that's not something that's a great retention and engagement play. Because you get two hours of engagement for a lot of money versus hours and hours and hours of of engagement for less money than that two hours cost. So it's more efficient in terms of the demands of the market to focus on streaming TV. And then if you're producing film, try and get that, that box office bump and then coast to profitability on streaming, which is something that Netflix isn't necessarily necessarily equipped to do, but Disney certainly is. And it just doesn't make sense unless it's a a new mutants or something where Disney is a little bit afraid of what they're going to do. So, something that traditionally in the early thousands would have been put direct to video or direct to DVD because it just seemed unprofitable. That makes sense to put it right on streaming just as a ex- escape valve. It doesn't make sense to put something that you have confidence in on Disney Plus or any streaming service at all because you're right. putting losing money and leaving it on the table. Yeah. Magic Mike is it's Channing Tatum back? Yes, yes. He's going to make 400 million dollars. Like what are they doing? And God knows that it, that Soderbergh can make the movie cheap too. Like <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, he's one of those well, again, again CC saying it from the outside but like the the job to be done that this distribution is solving for it's also just different. Like I, I yeah. don't sign up for Disney Plus and for these things to be able to watch the latest movies everywhere, right? Go back to like why did Netflix grow grew? Netflix grew not because you could watch the latest, but because you could find many different ones and you could choose. It wasn't about it being the newest thing that got released. And if it's something Let's say Magic Mike 3, or let's say uh, Pinocchio, whatever. The Thor, for me. I wasn't going to go to the movies because I like I really didn't care, and there were other things, and it was the summer, so I was perfectly fine waiting for a month. And if it was in Disney+, Plus, I would have probably waited for a month anyway. But they were able yeah. to make whatever they made. Again, it was it's not Marvel, you know. They're not hitting $1 billion home runs every time, but... With these smaller ones, it just feels also like that. Even that ratio, it's... Nobody's going to cancel their streaming subscription because a movie didn't come to the streaming platform a month earlier. 
HBMAX especially, with the strongest yes. library ever, like, most of my time that I've spent over the past, like, I'm watching the House of Dragons, but my last year has been Sopranos, it's been The Wire, it's been The West Wing, you know? It's, it's re-watching these things that are, like, 20 years old, 30 years old, and that's the power that it has. It's breath and availability to choose. It's, it's not about newness. Anyway. That makes a lot of sense. When is it coming out? Next, next year. Okay. Next winter. Winter 2023. We don't Be know what that means. Because they need time. To uh, actually, February to... 2023. So... Ooh. To yeah. warm up the winter. Yeah, that makes sense because... Warm the winter <laughs> because we know they have to they have to wait to 2023 to market their movies right yeah i guess so so actually yeah february 2023 it's literally like what six months from now i can't yeah. keep track of time when i hear winter 2023 in a headline i think like next next december but yeah truly like it's imminent it exists already and this kind of fly-by-wire decision to go back all in on theatrical after Warner decisively tried to skirt around theatrical for a year is just indicative of an overall ethos and sea change at, at Warner. Yeah, and just, but also, I mean, I think Jason Killar made the right decision for that year. Maybe it should have yeah. been more clear that it was like this is only for this year, only because of COVID to try to retain the talent relationships that got uh, burnt. But yeah, like those two things in my mind can live in the same company and in the same world. And it makes sense that they're going back. Just like I think it made sense for them to invest in it. They needed to push it somehow. Based on how abysmal some of the box office weekends have been this year, it is clear that he made the right choice in terms of trying to build HBO Max. If they're going to go all in on streaming, they might as well go all, all in. And then the year of COVID in the wings. Yeah. 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 I don't judge him for that decision. And I think wisely they're starting to, to, to reel back from it. Did you have a chance to read that Hollywood reporter analysis of HBO Max or Warner Discovery recently? No, I didn't. Okay, so it was in The Hollywood Reporter earlier this week. It was by Kim Masters, uh, dated September 20, September 16th. And kind of a weird article. I don't really know what the point is, except just kind of a vague <laughs> check-in on what their business is. But honestly, is that any worse than our podcast? <laughs> uh, but it really talking about, it starts off talking about how Zaslav's trying to figure out who's going to lead DC. He can't find a Feige. He doesn't know who's going to lead this. Dovetails a little bit through the fact that Warner has just struggled to retain talent as they're, they've been pushing for streaming, and they used to be this, this home for talent, home for at least like the Zack Snyders and Todd Phillips of the world, if not more treasured talent like Nolan or a Clint Eastwood or such. But but one of the, the things in here as well that I want to get your perspective on mm -hmm. is the article proposes this idea that in, in April 2024, that is the first time that Sazlaw could potentially try and uh, open negotiations with somebody about purchasing the new company based on the terms of the, the merger between Warner Brothers and, and Discovery. 
And this article says, quote, At that point, many industry observers believe that Comcast's Brian Roberts will make a long-awaited move, looking to combine NBC Universal and Warner Brothers Discovery. How's that land on you? Yeah. I remember we dipped our toes in, in this conversation last year when, when the, the merger was announced. And mm-hmm. I think we both agreed that another move made sense, like has been widely reported, that a move into one of the one of the broadcasters also makes sense. Because right now Discovery, Warner Bros. Discovery, it's basically cable is the right word. Right, they don't have an, an NBC, an ABC, a CBS, mm-hmm. a Fox that that is available everywhere. So that type of distribution is something that they like, that they lacked, and also that they made sense for uh, a company that was not very strong in streaming, under which both NBC and CBS, well now Paramount, fall. The thing that is interesting is that. It, it, it lands a little bit, like, it's been trying to push a little too much. Like, I, I honestly don't see why Universal is that much more of a clear landing spot than CVS. Just beyond the, you know, Universal is always on the on the talks because, oh, the Hulu thing, and they're always thinking about an acquisition, or they're on this thing, right? They're owned by Comcast, so, oh, they're always an investment opportunity. And when I think a little bit more strategically about the assets and what they're trying to combine, it's not that obvious. Like, in my mind, NBC and CBS, as they stand today, it's almost uh, a toss-up for what they might want. NBCU, the one thing that comes to mind is, of course, the theme parks, which CBS doesn't have. They have the relationship with the Harry Potter stuff. It's been rumored that the new Universal Park is going to have Lord of the Rings, so I guess Warner has made some business with them, even though I don't think it's actually, like, ongoing for around anything, and... At first sight, it actually lands that shooting from the hip. I like that saying. It feels like Universal and Warner have more similar type of content that they create, especially around franchises mm-hmm. and like this top shelf uh, content, as opposed to Paramount. That I think over the last ten years, all they've done that it's big is Tom Cruise related, which is fine. It's, it's fantastic, but like I think that's kind of the only thing they've done over the past ten years. Well, Universal has had, uh, you know, all of the things that they've tried—the Jurassic Worlds or the uh, the universe, the monster universes, and the King Kongs—and the, like they make these big movies. And Warner is also, yeah. you know, legendary stuff, literally. <laughs> and um, but I, again, it's a little bit difficult for me to prescribe how much of that is just because the capabilities are actually different. Versus, oh, the content would fit very nicely between one another. I talk for a long time. What do you think? What do you think when you read it? There's a there's an unnamed top industry exec in this article that says, quote, Warner's was the Tiffany studio. The way I read that is Warner Brothers was the studio where they were pushing the most prestige products and projects with the highest level of talent and giving them the most freedom give or take you know netflix like let's talk traditional studio system here in the 2010s and it seems now that warner brothers is actively moving away from that in most cases 
Universal actively courted Christopher Nolan and took his next project. Universal has Jordan Peele now. They have Blumhouse, which I think is one of the best pipelines for attracting the next generation of talent of anybody in the the modern studio system. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think it makes sense for the old ethos to absorb the company that used to have that ethos and and go from there. But at the same time, I don't, if I'm, if I'm the CEO of Comcast, I'm probably already worried about the, the content side of my business eating into the profits of my telecommunications business. Yeah. And I see no world in which absorbing a, a massive film studio and a massive TV studio into the fold and combining into creating one super streaming service ever drives profitability any higher than what they currently have. I just don't see the synergies there from a practical corporate strategy perspective. Yeah, I agree. I, they, uh, I think they have like $50 billion in debt. I mean, that's always baked into the price that you end up paying, but like, yeah, I. Uh, the the biggest thing also with these types of things is that we like we've talked about. We like to talk how many of these decisions end up boiling down to, like human drivers. And <laughs> if, if the CEO he really likes his job and he wants to keep it and he thinks the only way to keep it is to do something and he'll do it. You know, it's not necessarily because it makes a lot of sense. He can then ask his strategy team to be like, show me how it makes sense. Or show me how we make it work. And with some of these things, like being, you know, according to Chase, there is three companies that could buy these folks. NBC, CBS, and... Is there a world where Netflix buys them? No. Is there a world where Apple buys them? They're too expensive. Is there a world where Disney buys them? I'm never going to say no after they bought Fox. But, you know, even let's say NBC and CBS are... The ones that makes a uh, universal and, and CBS like, are any of them on such a hurry to do this? Are investors gonna reward them as much as they think they will by spending two hundred and fifty whatever two hundred billion dollars on, on these folks? It doesn't seem to to be. So, I also don't see where all of these origins is coming from, and this feels also like, Saslav going fishing. Yeah, I I think this article is just kind of a silly article and. As much as I am scared of conglomerates becoming super conglomerates and then continuing to combine, I just see no path to this industry becoming more profitable in the short term for anybody. And I see no world in which these companies keep combining because it just makes no financial or synergistic sense. Like, in actual cold hard numbers, I don't see why this would happen, especially in 2024. And this just seems like a very myopic take to me yeah yeah on the same page we there's columbia was once owned by coca-cola like come on that's that's it's all cyclical this all happens like i don't know we're gonna have another rash of indies or something and it's all gonna change again and then i don't know nobody has a long fall view of history in this industry because most people just don't care exactly i see a24 or neon or some of these other stuff like, I know some of them have distribution deals, but, like, some of these people are going to throw the checkbook at them. Yeah. You know, like, when Disney acquired the Miramax, 
or, or like these types of things. Uh, folks with searchlight. Um, but anyway. Do you have an AUA for me today? I don't have an AUA, but my AUA strategy was Ooh. just to ask you what you're watching. So to do a, a wow instead. Perfect. That for you? <laughs> yes. So we, I'm continuing with House of Dragons, with Rings of Power, with the West Wing. I'm almost done. And so you almost done with the West Wing. You're in the in the good final season. I mean the final season. Yeah, final season rips. Like that's one of the best seasons of that show, despite being really nothing like the other seasons. Yeah, five and six are not that good, but yeah, the last one is <laughs> that the debate episode where they actually show the debate is one of those that I'm like for the past six seasons. Every time something like this was going to happen, the episode ends, and then the next one ends three days after yeah. this happens. I want to see these things happening. And then they spend a whole episode. It's just a debate. But anyway, very good. Um, I have tickets to go watch Avatar on Friday. IMAX 3D. Nice. Very excited. But the thing that I watched yesterday, because Ariel and I realized that we've never watched, is... Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. What an insane <laughs> movie. <laughs> but it's so good. The Princess Bride. Mandy Patinkin playing the Diego Luna... Of the 90s. Of the 80s. 87. It is very strange that it's Mandy Patinkin. It's I, so that, strange. This is a film I did not see until high school. And it's not the right energy for me. I've never loved it. But I don't begrudge anyone who has. And there are obviously like iconic things with that. Yeah. And watching it as a first time, I don't know. Because I, I, I on purpose went into it without, you know. Like, okay, I've heard about it, let's see. I don't know if it's a parody. I don't know if this was comedy in the 80s. I don't know if this was, like, what it was. But watching it for the first time, without knowing the tone that it has, Ariel and I were, like, every five minutes we were like, wait, what? Did they just do that? What? This makes no sense. But his name is Inigo Montoya, and he killed his father and prepared to die. It's very cool. He's great. <laughs> He's great. What yeah, about you? What? On my end, I did not have the chance to shout out Barbarian last week, but would love to shout it out. Mm -hmm. It is one of the most fun theatrical experiences I've had in a while. It's a horror film, and it's one of those horror films with the marketing, like you can watch the trailer, it pretty much gives nothing away, okay. and I would advise you not to look up anything else beyond that, but... I'm not watching it, so I'm not going to look anything beyond that. <laughs> like, just great... Great horror film. I highly recommend. I think it's something that you would definitely like, and Ariella would not hate, I think, in terms of interesting. The okay. Yeah. I'll run it by her. Yeah. We're trying to there's, get... There's a little... There's some violence, but it's it's compellingly weird. It's good. Okay. And you will have no idea where it's going, and it's that's why it's fun to see in a theater. Got it. Okay. That's good. We're, we're going to try to... I think you're also... You're watching Don't Worry Darling this weekend. We're trying to catch that. Saturday or yes. Sunday. Uh, yes, I am watching that this weekend. We're trying to see it Friday, I think, just so we get ahead of the, the hype cycle before it, or the, I imagine it's not going to be hype as much as discourse. And then uh, I did watch Moon Age Daydream last night, the Bowie documentary. Oh yeah, how was it? I'll say documentary is a generous term. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's just a bunch of montages of footage 
in a way that's it's all aphorisms and I didn't learn anything new about Bowie that I didn't already kind of know which disappointed me so it's cool seeing Bowie footage presented very large on a big screen with good sound but I think it's a pretty bad documentary honestly hmm. okay that's a shame unfortunately great trailer but yeah great trailer especially in the theater great trailer that bad documentary oh that's sad to scare well, it sounds like we're going to have to catch up on Don't Worry Darling next week, hopefully. And Avatar. Are you also going to try to catch it this weekend? Uh, I'm going to try and see Avatar. And for the record, this is the re-release of the original Avatar. We are going back to Pandora in 3D before we go into the waters in Pandora in December, right? Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Very excited. I don't, think, I don't know if I've watched a movie in 3D since Avatar. I mean, I know for I sure have. I haven't watched a good 3D movie since Avatar, but... Uh, I feel like you're you're failing your your country here, Aton. There is one man who released a great 3D film with that Alex and I just rewatched in 2D yesterday. Guillermo Toro. Gravity. Quaron. Oh, sure. Quaron. Yeah. I mean, Gravity is a great 3D movie. It's a great. Yeah. I don't think I watched any 3D movie in a 3D theater, but maybe they, well, we need a re-release. Yeah, there's a re-release. I don't think we need a Gravity 2, but... but. <laughs> well, if we're getting an Inside Out. I'd watch so. it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Sandra Bullock goes back to space after what happened, which is crazy. But anyway, on that note, great catching up. I'll catch up. As always. Next week with you, we'll talk about Don't Worry Dive. Later. <laughs>